do you think is the single most important factor to spark someone's interest in Christianity? Is it answers to the hardest theological questions? Is it experiencing a miracle they can't explain? Is it suffering or a personal crisis that invites curiosity? These can all be used to promote interest in Christian faith, but as Don Evers and Doug Shoup show from the data compiled in their book, I Once Was Lost, by far the first step in someone's journey towards Christian faith is to learn to trust a Christian. Not just know them, but trust them. To respect what they think, how they live. To believe the Christian actually cares about them. Essentially, to be in relationship with a Christian who is modeling for them a life of faith. I think this is actually encouraging to many people. We probably won't all learn the arguments for the existence of God. We may not witness a miraculous healing, but we can earn people's trust by living lives of integrity and faithfulness. And maybe by trusting us, these people we care so deeply about will actually trust Jesus as well. We're going to see such a clear example of faithful Christian witness in our story today. And if you're listening and would not identify as Christian, I think what you will hear today will not be not only validating to you, but encouraging as well. You've heard the story, but I want to tell it in depth so we don't miss what's going on here. After we spend some time soaking in this story, we'll highlight what this story tells us about faithful Christian witness. Remember, we are tracing the Apostle Paul's second missionary journey where he's spreading the good news of Jesus Christ. He's currently in Philippi, where last week we saw a wealthy businesswoman, Lydia, come to faith. Today, it will be a slave girl and a Roman jailer. The slave girl, the language implies a very young girl, had a spirit or demon by which she predicted the future, verse 16. The phrase is literally a spirit of python or a pythoness. Now, I can't help but think of the parcel of tongues from Harry Potter, but for this first century Greek city, this meant she was a follower of the Greek god Apollo, who was embodied by a snake and was believed to possess his powers. If she was believed to have a god's power, one could make some serious cash off her words. But why is the spirit evangelizing? Apparently the girls following Paul around yelling, these men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. You'd think Paul would appreciate the free advertising, right? Well, actually, there's more going on here. Her declarations, although they don't sound like it to us, would have been misleading to those listening. For starters, the phrase Most High God was not the Christian God Paul was proclaiming. It was a common denominator for deity for all these people groups. It could mean Yahweh or Zeus or some other deity. Furthermore, there is no definite article here in the Greek, so the phrase is not that Paul is showing the way of salvation, but literally a way of salvation. Finally, in the first century, the topic of salvation was common because it could include anything from physical health and healing to deliverance from trouble. 
taken with the fact that this girl is clearly identified with the occult through the god Apollo means her shouts make it more ambiguous who Paul actually represents. So Paul becomes troubled. Deeply disturbed is a better translation than annoyed in verse 18. This is unwelcome publicity, which actually does more to confuse or misinform than it does to promote his message. But I think there's even more going on here. Looking at this little girl whose life was controlled by a demon, exploited by greedy men who only cared about their pocketbooks, Paul cannot stand to have anything Christian associated with that. That is not the kind of God Paul knows and is representing. How can he represent a God who sets the captives free with her as the poster child? The message is inconsistent with the means and he's not having any of it. As usual, greedy, corrupt leaders don't take too kindly to those who shut down business. The Greek text makes this clear with a wordplay we miss in English. Paul tells the demon in verse 8, come out of her. And verse 19 says, when the owner saw that their hope of profit had come out of her, it's all about the money. And now that's gone. Knowing the city rulers won't care about their financial losses, they drag Paul and Silas to the marketplace, the center of all civic life in the city, and cleverly disguise their motivation. Instead, they make political and religious charges they know will appeal to the subconscious anti-Semitism and nationalistic pride in Philippi being a Roman colony. Verses 20 to 21 can be translated like this. These men are causing disturbance in our city. Jews as they are, they are proclaiming customs which we may neither accept nor practice Roman citizens as we are. This inflammatory language is one explanation why in verse 22 the crowd gets roused so quickly. It's also one possible explanation for why Luke and Timothy, who are with Paul and Silas in this city, are not detained and beaten. They look less Jewish. The accusation is false, and but there's no serious investigation of the charge. They're stripped beaten with rods, severely flogged, and thrown in jail. The stocks mentioned in verse 24 not only secure the prisoners, but can be used to torture them as well. They had numerous sized holes to force the legs apart in uncomfortable positions. So after this kind of beating and torture, what do we hear coming from the jail cell that night? Whimpers? Groans? Cries of pain or agony, cursing the slave owners? Quite the contrary. Verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Not groans, but singing. No wonder the other prisoners were listening to them. And then, the earthquake. Not one barely registering on the Richter scale, but a sizable one, verse 26 says, shaking the foundations of the prison, opening all the doors of the prison, and releasing all the chains of the prisoners there. One commentator says we shouldn't see the earthquake as a random miracle, but as a response to the praying and singing. 
The jailer wakes up and verse 27 says, when he saw the doors open, he withdrew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. In Roman law, if a prisoner escaped, the life of the guard was demanded in their place. We saw this in Acts 12, 19, when an earthquake breaks Peter's chains, an angel leads Peter out and those guards were executed. This guard figures, I'll save myself the shame and do it myself. In the darkness, seeing the jailer's silhouette in the doorway, Paul shouts, don't do it, we're all here. Somehow, Paul and Silas' response to their adversity has captured the attention of all the prisoners in the jail that night. They're going to do whatever those guys are doing. The jailer, getting his assistants to bring in more torches so they can see what's going on, sees every single prisoner there. To me, the miracle isn't just that the earthquake opened the prison doors and released their chains. It's that they all, by Paul's leadership, stayed in jail. Think about this. Paul is there unjustly. He's been tasked with preaching the message of Jesus Christ throughout the whole known world. How can he possibly do that behind bars? One could make the case that God was opening the door to break him out of jail, much like he had done for Peter. Any other man would have probably seen that jailer as the last thing standing in his way to get out. But not Paul. Paul will not have this man's blood on his hands. The right thing, preaching Christ, done in the wrong way, allowing this jailer to kill himself, is still wrong. Could it be that the man in the vision just a few verses prior to this in Acts 16:9, begging for Paul to come to Macedonia was the face of this jailer? Is that why Paul stayed? We don't know. But we know Paul's been praying, and he believes this is the right thing to do. And it pays off. The jailer asks the cry of every human heart in desperation, What must I do to be saved? Paul summarizes, Trust Jesus. And then he expounds on that. The jailer in an act of penitence, leads them into the prison courtyard and using the well there, washes their wounds and is himself baptized. And as he washed them from their wounds, he himself was washed from his sins, cites one early church father. The party relocates to his home where the celebration continues most of the night. By morning, Paul and Silas are back in jail. The city rulers have decided to release the prisoners, either because they assume the earthquake is the anger of the deity, or because it helps to have friends with good connections like wealthy Lydia, or because they figure one night of beating and imprisonment is sufficient to teach them a lesson. They send their order to release Paul and Silas. But Paul won't do it. He stages the first sit-in. He plays his ace card, the Roman citizen card, which was literally a get-out-of-jail-free card, forcing the officials to apologize and escort him out. Now, Paul's not being vindictive here. 
He is ensuring the church's protection from persecution for months and maybe years to come. The whole town has witnessed this. He's got to clear his reputation for the sake of the Philippian church. And this may be what's behind Paul not playing the Roman citizen card earlier when he's being beaten. Roman citizens couldn't be detained or beaten without a trial, and they couldn't be expelled from a city. By waiting until after the beating to inform the authorities of his citizenship, this puts the officials in a very awkward situation legally. They can't kick Paul out of the city, but they also can't give him a trial because to do so would be to expose their own breach of law by beating him without a trial and risk their own position. They are reduced to pleading, negotiating with the very person they had just beaten as verses 38 and 39 show. Now there's a lot we can learn here, but I want to focus on two aspects of faithful Christian witness. If we as Christ's witnesses today in Minneapolis, Edina, Richfield, Bloomington, St. Louis Park can live this way, I believe we will see people come to trust Jesus as Lord. First, faithful Christian witness will be marked by integrity, meaning the way we live will be consistent with the God we represent. In both instances, with the slave girl and by stopping the jailer from committing suicide, Paul's actions were consistent with the God he represented. How could he preach about a God who sets captives free with a young girl possessed by a demon as his spokesperson? How could he preach to those prisoners about a God who had sacrificed himself on our behalf if he had instead allowed the jailer to draw his sword so that they might scuttle free. When we promote a God who is loving and aren't loving ourselves, that's a problem. When we claim God is just, but we don't advocate for justice in our city or in our world, why should anyone take us seriously? When we say God is holy, and yet our most famous Christian leaders are known in the news for their arrogance, corruption, or sexual sin. That creates a barrier for people knowing God accurately. When we speak of God's generosity, but are known for our stinginess, the numbers don't add up. Our actions matter, church. Let's take Jesus' love for the outcast. Like a single guy with a cute puppy is a chick magnet, so too Jesus was a magnet for others overlooked, avoided, and even disdained. Is that what the most vulnerable or marginalized in our society today would say of me? Am I a person in the city or in the PTA or in the office? Or am I the family member? Those who are on the most outside would look to for safety and protection. I'm afraid at times my eyes reflect more fear than mercy, more prejudice than compassion. No, we don't do it perfectly. That's why he is the savior, not us. And we don't do it alone. This is one reason why we're Christ's body together 
the church, because together we stand a better chance of reflecting Him accurately. But if we are to take seriously our charge to represent Him, we must take seriously the call to actually look like Him. What aspect of God's character do you want to see more manifested in your life? Maybe it's humility. Maybe it's selflessness. Maybe in this political season, it's a that beautiful combination of grace and truth Jesus so wonderfully embodied. A conviction without condescension. Whatever it is, let's ask him to form this in us. This is the work the Holy Spirit is willing and able to do. As Paul will say later in 2 Corinthians 3.18, And we, with unveiled faces, who see him accurately, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is spirit. May it be so. Second, and this is related, faithful Christian witness will model sacrificial love rooted in a deep trust of God. Do you think Paul didn't know just what he was getting himself into when he freed that slave girl? He's not that naive. Do you think he didn't want to get out of that jail cell? Of course he did. But he exercised deep trust in God when he called out to that jailer. And it was compelling. The jailer literally owed Paul his life. Just like you can't argue with someone living life authentically, you can't argue with someone loving you sacrificially. I think of our, our dear congregation Andy and I were a part of 20 years ago in Vancouver, British Columbia. Years after we left, the congregation began being more intentional about coming around refugees who were fleeing from war and other disasters. At the time, Canada as a country was receiving far more refugees than any other country in North America. The church determined to come around these people and to help settle them. And let me tell you, it cost them a lot. It cost a lot of money. It cost people opening their basement suite for housing. It cost sharing of clothes and food. It cost sometimes teaching these people English or helping them improve English. It cost trusting their children to befriend the refugees' children so as to build trust. It cost legal counsel. But for many families, it literally changed the outcome of their lives. Inevitably, out of an abundance of gratitude, those families would say, what must we do to be saved? Why do you go to all this trouble for us? Those dear people responded, our Lord was a refugee too. At the age of two, his life was in danger. We love you with his love. Sacrificial love is its own defense. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm really good at marginal love. A day of service here, a good deed there, frankly, a peripheral sacrifice, but really willing to be able to take the hit with my finances, my reputation, or how people perceive me, with my time, that's a lot harder. 
I find Paul and Silas's example convicting. I know, I know. We are all exhausted after a long week of elections. We're struggling ourselves with Corona. We don't have much to give. I hear you. I'm overwhelmed too at times. And we cannot give what we do not have. But this is what we are called to do. Some of you have told me recently that you're really bored, that there's not a lot for you to do right now. And I want to encourage you, use what you do have. Use this time to find creative, albeit healthy, and socially distanced ways to pour yourself out for others. My goodness, the needs are endless right now. There are so many options. If you want help thinking through what could be meaningful and safe for you, we can help you. Others of you are juggling little kids at home nonstop and it is exhausting. Don't forget, sacrificial love being poured out begins in your home. When you pour yourself out for those messy little humans, you are building their own perception of a God who is loving, generous, sacrificial, kind. There may not be much left over. Just talk with God about that. He will provide opportunities and people for you to see and to serve. City Church, we have the privilege of proclaiming on behalf of the Most High God the way of salvation. True human flourishing for this life and the one to come. But we can only do that as we, his witnesses, represent him accurately and as we love others sacrificially. Our lives are meant to be confidence builders for others that he is indeed worthy of our trust. Now this has always been our calling, but we have a unique opportunity here People are watching, just as they were Paul and Silas in that jail cell. Many are desperate right now. The walls are crumbling before them. Their life is on the line, so they're willing to ask, what must I do to be saved? Others are suffering, crushed under oppression at the hands of greedy, corrupt men, and they need to be set free. Jesus has given us the charge, you will be my witnesses. We're all he's got. There is no plan B to represent Jesus on this earth. May we take it seriously. May we take seriously his charge and in doing so, see many more come to receive this good news. Let's pray. Oh, our God, we do worship you. We say uh, with Paul's great hymn in Philippians 2, Jesus is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Oh, Father, may we live our lives such that people can see who he is based on how we live, that our, your love would pour through us, drenching those around us, that they cannot help but come to believe and trust in you. This we pray in Jesus' name and always for the greater fame of his name. Amen.